could uh, sit and hear that some more. (laughs) Meditate on those profound truths uh, that we're celebrating here this uh, time of year. I plan to have a Christmas message next Sunday. So that means all of you need to come back. I want to finish uh, where we've been for a number of weeks, the book of Romans, the fourth chapter in the book of Romans, to specify, if you'll turn there with me this morning, Romans chapter 4, verse 18 is where we will begin. I want to read these inspired words uh, in your hearing, beginning at verse 18. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God." And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also or able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who will believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. Subject uh, for these verses, I've chosen these words, believe God, receive righteousness. In the fourth chapter of Romans, Paul argues relentlessly that the righteousness sinners need to be in a right relationship with Almighty, Holy God is by faith. Always has been, always will be by faith alone. Abraham, the principal human subject of Romans 4, had such faith. In the text before him, before us, we see his faith amplified as he resolutely trusted the word of the living God. We see it first under this first heading that I have, and is this. Abraham responds to God by faith. Abraham's faith, you'll notice in verse 18, it is um, described this way, in hope against hope he believed. This is a paradoxical statement. Fourth century preacher Chrysostom uh, helps us, he explains it this way. It means this, he said, it was against man's hope, in hope which is of God. Man's hope is the kind that is expressed in the words, I hope it will happen. I I hope I will win the lottery. There is an uncertainty in man's hope. The hope that is in God doesn't have the quality of uncertainty. On the contrary, it is certain that what is hoped for will happen. When you trust God, you can be sure that it will come to pass. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Faith and hope are related. Abraham's faith was in God, and that faith gave him confident hope in the promise of God. When you um, have that kind of hope, you know that God will fulfill his promise. You have confidence. His faith was not a natural faith. It was a God-given faith. Faith uh, that is God-given is a divinely given ability to believe the bare word of God. You simply believe what God has declared. You simply say, I believe what God has stated. That is indeed the way all faith is that saves the soul. He believed the divine promise that he had been made a father of many nations. That was what Paul tells us that God said. The bottom of the verse, verse 18, it says, so shall your descendants be. Paul quotes there from Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. It is in Genesis chapter 15 where we have the historical situation in which the words of Yahweh that we just read were spoken to Abraham, the patriarch. If you'd like, you may turn there with me, Genesis chapter 15, as we look at the text and what it says there. Genesis chapter 15. Here, in this historical recounting by Moses, we see Abraham's faith was displayed and defined. Genesis chapter 15. If you look at verse 2, it's where we begin as we seek for a few moments to explore and exposit what is said here in relation to what we're addressing in Romans chapter 4. There had been a great victory God had given Abraham over his enemies, and he comes, and he's an old, older man now at this time. He'd been walking with the Lord a long time, and Abraham says in verse 2, Genesis 15, he says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? As you've just seen, he's childish, childish, childless. God had not given him any offspring, though God had promised to give Moses children more than once. Up to this very point, in fact, in Genesis chapter 12, 2, it says, I will make you a great nation. In Genesis chapter 12, verse um, 7, it says this, and there was strife, um, chapter uh, 12, verse 7, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Notice the word descendants. In chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Verse 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if you, anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. God says, I'm going to give you children. But in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham says, God, you have not given me any children. So Abraham says, God, I have a solution. 
I have an alternative. You've promised to give me children, but thus far you've not done it. That's okay, because I have Eleazar, uh, an heir in my house, and he can be my heir. Yahweh vetoed that. He took out his divine pen and said, no. Verse 3, Abraham says, since you have, uh, he says, verse 4, then the, behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, he shall be your heir. Yahweh, this is the Lord, he said, no, to your expedient, but uh, this is the word of the Lord. There will be a an heir, it will come from you. You will have an heir by procreation from your own body. This, my friends, is a prodigious promise. To underscore what he had just said, God said, Abe, hey, come with me. We're going to take a stroll outside. So they go outside in the desert and they look up and God says, notice what he says in verse 5. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens. And count the stars, if you're able to count them. He couldn't count them. We can't count them. In fact, what they do, astronomers, they guess at how many are up there. And then God said, so shall your descendants be. The very words that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verse 18 what was Abraham's response? We see it here. It is clear. He says in verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, to, reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. And God imputed righteousness to Abraham. But let me drill down a little deep, more deeply here. He had no child. God had vetoed the idea that Abraham had presented to him. And said, yeah, you're going to have some children from your own body. And they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what did Abraham do? He said, I believe you, Lord. I believe you. Abraham, by the way, had believed God from the earth, the Chaldees, when God said, get up and come. I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to give you. But here his faith is defined as believing the promise of God. And that it would give him the righteousness that he needed. Now back in uh, our text. In Romans chapter 4. The apostle Paul continues. And in the unfolding of the rest of the chapter. We see the, um, the characteristics of Abraham's faith. Notice in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. One would think that um, one's faith would weaken when one would sit down and begin to contemplate the difficulty of fulfilling the promise. You would think when you think about, I'm old. I'm 100 years old. And my bride is 90. Now you might say, well, he wasn't uh, seeing things clearly. Oh, yes, he was. That word contemplated 
in the Greek text is, it means to see clearly. Abraham faced the facts. He knew that his body was as good as dead. A body effectively as dead, a dead man's body. He cannot engender a child. He knows this. Moreover, he knows that Sarah is infertile as well. He can't engender one and she can't conceive one. But God had told him, you can have descendants, that if you can count the stars, that's how many you're going to have. And he believed God. He saw clearly his circumstance. He saw clearly the case. Abraham, therefore, was not blind to his circumstances. His faith was not a leap in the dark. It, wasn't a, it was a leap from contrary evidence of his senses into the security of God's word and promise. Abraham believed God despite the impossibility of the circumstance. I think we have to think for a minute, this hadn't happened before. No centenarian and a 90-year-old woman had ever conceived and born a child. He couldn't go back in history and look, oh, it's happened before. No, this is a new thing. But Abraham's own weakness, his reductive, uh, reproductively speaking, did not weaken his faith in God's promise. Why not? Because he didn't look to himself, but to God. Abraham believed that God had miracle-working power. Supernatural power to enable him to engender a child and Sarah to conceive one. In Hebrews 11, 11, when she had come to the place of faith, after a little debacle we'll look at a little later, it says in Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She said, God, you're faithful. You're going to pull it off. So here he is, a man that contemplating, seeing clearly his circumstance, his faith didn't waver, uh, weaken. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, the next characteristics, he did not waver in unbelief. Waver. This word is from the original languages, diakrena. It means to be divided in one's own mind. In other words, Abraham, as he contemplates, as he thinks about this, as he thinks thoughtfully about it, sees clearly he did not vacillate between belief and doubt. In his mind, he will say, I believe God. No, no, I don't believe him. Yes, I believe he can do it, but no, I'm not so sure. Because how can you, this happen? I'm an old man. But he did not doubt the promise of God. He did not waver. Now, I know some of you have read the Bible, and you're going to say to me, well, wait, 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 wait. What about Genesis 17, 17? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's go there and look. Genesis 17, 17. 
What about uh, Abraham? Did he, did he not waver there? Genesis 17, 17. Have you found that place? El Shaddai had come to him. This particular point, he's, he's an old man, as you recall. And God has already told him what's going to happen with he and Sarah. In verse 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Oh, you say, well, this is, uh, this is wavering. Uh, you know, he laughed. And it wasn't hidden from God because it's here in the text was because God told Moses that what, that's what he did. Let me tell you what happened here. He wasn't disbelieving El Shaddai, the Almighty. For God did not voice disapproval of him, his laughter. In fact, in chapter 18, if God wants to disapprove, he knows how to do it. He knows how to let us know, uh, yes, you're not believing. In chapter 18 of Genesis, we see verse 13, Sarah laughed too. Let's, now, verse 11, let's just start there. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, I sh- Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And then he says, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? What I want to point out here is that the Lord rebuked Sarah because she laughed at the prospect of having a child in her old age. Her laughter was a lack of faith. With Abraham, the lack of correction from the Almighty, from the living God, did not imply that he lacked faith, but it was a limited faith. He struggled. How can it be fulfilled? How can this happen? Remember Mary, when the angel told her, told her as a virgin she was going to have a child? She didn't doubt. She said, how can this be? That's what Abraham wanted. How can this be? He was pushed to the limits of credulity. By the way, struggling faith is not doubt, just as temptation to sin is not sin itself. You can doubt, not doubt, uh, struggle and not doubt. In your faith. Go back with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Another characteristic of his faith, we see that he didn't grow weak in faith, he didn't waver in his faith, but we see in verse 20 of Romans chapter 4 that he, the positive, he grew strong in faith. His faith was directed toward God. His mind was fixed on the God who does what is humanly impossible. Growing strong in faith. Notice what it does. It gives glory to God. Verse 20. Because it affirms that God would and could do what he promised. It gives glory to God because it declares that he is faithful. 
It gives glory to God because it's a statement when we trust him that God cannot lie. It means that he will follow through on what he says and that gives God glory. It puts his character on display. We're saying God said it and that settles it. It will be done. You'll notice in verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Fully assured, Abraham was filled with certainty about God fulfilling what he's told him he would accomplish. The word there, able, is a wonderful word. He was able also to perform. Get this, brothers and sisters, God is not limited by nature. He created it. He controls it. He rules over it. God is able to do whatever he chooses consistent with his nature to accomplish his purpose. Here we are in the Christmas season. And that's a stupendous miracle that the second person of the Trinity was incarnated. He became a human being. Retaining his deity, of course, but he became a human being. He became the God-man. That is a miracle of greatest profundity and mystery. That God will unite himself to human nature in the womb of a virgin. God is able. People oftentimes say about things that are profound, things that they cannot understand. They say, uh, I am speechless. I have no words. I have three of them. God is able. There is nothing beyond his capability, nothing beyond his omnipotence. There's nothing that he cannot do that he chooses to do to accomplish his holy purpose in our life to save us, to redeem us, to glorify his name. That's good news, isn't it? Our God is able. You need to keep that in mind when you think about the promises of God and what he plans to do, that God is able. So Abraham responds to God by faith. Um, Then God responds to Abraham with credited righteousness. And we see this in verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Again, the Apostle Paul returns to the theme that the righteousness of men, that the righteous men need To be accepted before God is credited to them by faith. Faith alone is the instrument of our means by which divine righteousness is credited or reckoned to one's spiritual account. In fact, that's the whole point of this passage. We see this uh, here in chapter 4, this passage we're in. We see it in verse 3, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We see in verse 6, God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 13, the bottom of the verse, but through the righteousness of faith. Then we come to this one that we're in right now, the same thing. Therefore, it is also credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He didn't work for it. He didn't perform a ceremonial rite, i.e. circumcision, to receive righteousness. He did not pursue law-keeping. It was solely by faith. Faith alone. 
that he received the righteousness that he needed. Now, one point of clarification I want to give you here. Paul uses shorthand in our text. You'll notice he says this. It was also credited to him as righteousness. Credited to him as righteousness can be conceived to mean that faith is righteousness. His faith is not righteousness. John Piper, in his excellent work entitled Counted Righteous in Christ, remarks, quote, Abraham's faith does not consist of righteousness, but that his faith connects him to the promise of God's imputed righteousness, end of quote. Earlier, as we were working our way through this portion of uh, the word of God, I had us look at couple of places, three or four, that shows that it is by faith that righteousness comes. And this is an important point. It is by faith. In verse 22 of Romans 3, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God, divine righteousness, perfect righteousness that people need is through faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the instrument. Verse 28, for we maintain, in Romans 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's by faith. Faith is the means. That's how you get it. Why is that important? A lot of people think somehow it is faith plus their works. It's faith plus their baptism. Faith plus their church membership. Faith plus whatever they add to it. No, no, it is not any of that. It is faith alone. And when there's faith in God's word, he imparts salvation. He imputes righteousness. Verse 23 Back in Romans chapter 4, verse 23, God responds to us the same way he did to Abraham, with the same righteousness. That's my third point. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, verse 24, but our sakes also. What was written about Abraham in Genesis is not only for him, <laughs> but it's for all who would subsequently live after him. To all the Christians, all to, to all of us, all of us sitting in this room, every Christian uh, who reads this. In fact, the implicit assumption of the whole fourth chapter of Romans is that it is for us. It's for us. Men and women today are saved exactly in the same way. That is, they believe God and receive from him salvation, which provides the righteousness needed to be justified before God. Let me explain what that means. The righteousness is needed to be justified before God. When a person believes the gospel, when a person commits his life or her life to Jesus Christ, at that precise moment, what God does, he imputes righteousness. And when he imputes divine righteousness or Christ's righteousness, then he can declare that person justified or righteous. That's how it works. You believe, God imputes righteousness, and then God says, okay, you're justified. You have the righteousness that you need because I've imputed it to you, and since you have that righteousness, therefore you are righteous before me. That's salvation. That's what's entailed there in that glorious 
reality of what happened when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You perhaps did not know that. When you got saved, you just knew, I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, he saved me from my sin, but you didn't know until later that God had given you divine or alien righteousness. We believe him. Now today, uh, we have a much greater revelation than Abraham did, yet our Lord Jesus Christ said about Abraham in John eight fifty six, your faith, uh, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Wow. Uh, that was a long time ago, but he saw Jesus' day. And how did he see it? Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 14, no doubt, is the issue. Isaac was the type of foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he took him up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there. And God called out of heaven, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he found a ram rather than sacrificing his son. Abraham looked to the, forward to the promise of God. We look back to the cross. We believe in a God who raised Jesus from the dead, do we not? Amen. Question, we believe the, the word of God. In Romans chapter uh, 10, verses 9 and 10, we'll see the connection between believing in Jesus, salvation, and righteousness. Romans 10. It says there, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. I, I, maybe I need to unpack that for a moment. Agree with God that word confess that Jesus is Lord. That he is deity, but it's more than deity. That he is Lord. He, he is sovereign. He reigns over everything, but not only reigns over everything. He, has to, he is to reign over our life. He's to be our Lord. And the verse further states, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Hear the promise? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. When you believe, God graciously imputes to you righteousness. I just said that a moment ago, did I not? And it continues, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Divine deliverance from the sin that separates fallen man from holy God. That's what happens when one confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. That is the transformative result that occurs. It just states there. Back in verse 25 of Romans 4, verse 25, says this. The A portion about our Lord Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. In verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Hmm. Delivered, uh, paradidomy, the word is divine passive in the original tongue. Uh, God is the implied agent of the action. What this means, it is God who handed Jesus over judicially uh, because of our transgressions. This is an allusion or reference to penal substitution. 
the reason Jesus was delivered over by the hands of Judas and he was murdered on the cross is because God handed him over so that he would be the one who would pay the penalty for our sins. God handed him over. And then he was raised. God handed him over, but God also raised him up. He was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrificial death for us on the cross. Christ paid for our sins so God could justly justify us. Because our sins were paid for. They didn't go unatoned for. Because God is just. He must punish sin. And he did. In Christ. So he can justly justify us, declare us righteous when we believe. He can justly reckon to our account righteousness because Christ was delivered over for us. The proof of God accepting his sacrifice is that he was raised from the dead. He lives forevermore. That's the wonderful news, right? Is it important how a person or what a person believes? Yes, it is. Is it important how one thinks about how one gets righteousness or becomes accepted before God? Yes, it is. Because the wrong idea, the wrong belief means damnation. Eternity is at stake. Eternal life is at stake. There's only one way to be right with God. And it is to possess his righteousness. If a person doesn't possess his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, who died and was raised from the dead, that person is headed for damnation. You got to have the right righteousness. Not your own. You try to achieve by works, not your own, by trying to be good, not your own because you were baptized, though you need to be baptized, you're a Christian, not your own. You need divine righteousness. And that only comes from God through Jesus Christ. You have to trust him. The gospel. What is the gospel? It's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is located. It's when you believe the gospel that then you receive the righteousness of God. Apart from that, you cannot be saved. Apart from that, you cannot have eternal life. Believe God. Receive righteousness. Repudiate him. Refuse him. You continue in your sin. Thank God for the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. May I ask you a personal question? Do you have the righteousness of God? On your spiritual account, does it say righteous? Righteous. 